All right, good morning, Calvary Church. All right. Uh, it is good to see you all. We continue, as Aaron said, this series on life with God. Spiritual practices for a closer walk. That is something we all want to have, I would think, and believe that we want to feel close to God. We want to have a life that is lived with God. And I believe that we can have that. And today we talk about the practice of prayer. And we'll be talking about prayer both this week and next week in some different ways. But life with God is simply being with him. And life with God is prayer, and prayer is life with God. So I want us to be thinking today about prayer, and about prayer maybe a little differently than you normally have as your list of requests to get out. All the stuff I need, all the stuff I want, I want for this week for us to think about it the way a guy that lived back in 150 to 215 AD said, Clement of Alexandria said, Prayer is keeping company with God. Okay, so this whole thing of being with him, just keeping company with God. A scripture that kind of gets us there is Psalm 46.10. Be still and know that I am God. Even Jesus in Matthew 6 said, don't keep on babbling on and on with all these words when it comes to prayer, that we can let our words be few. And to simply be with him. I want to help us understand that a bit more. Uh, this summer, as I was on sabbatical, I was uh, a couple different places. One of those was up in the Swiss Alps, as Brian Smith a couple weeks ago mocked me and said I was frolicking in the mountains. And I was. Uh, but during that frolicking, I was on a hike. And hiking really helps me when it comes to prayer, when it comes to being with God. I was just talking with someone last week about how hiking helps them as well, that just walking kind of keeps you moving, keeps my, myself completely awake at least. It's okay sometimes to fall asleep, but sometimes when I lay down or sit down, I kind of drift off. And so it helps me to kind of stay awake and alert, but also to be focused on the Lord. And I was on this hike in this place up above Lauterbrunnen in Switzerland, uh, go up a tram and kind of hiking across this ridge line overlooking a little village called Grindelwald, which just sounds magical. Uh, but uh, this was the view that you see on the screen here. And you might think, yeah, that sounds pretty easy to, you know, to be able to meet with God and experience God with that view in the background. And yes, you're right. But part of that was... I was just walking and talking to the Lord of just, God, I want to help me grow in my love for you and my love for other people. I feel like expressing like a weakness that, Lord, I want to be able to love others more. And while I was on this hike, there was this profound outpouring of God's presence and love for me in the midst of this moment. A significant moment of God saying, Eric, Stop worrying about loving me right now and loving others right now and just allow me to love you. Receive my love for you. And I've mentioned this even before, but this, is, this was a very profound, significant moment that I had with the Lord. And it was a moment where it felt like, 
literally heaven meeting earth, God's presence right there with me. And then, uh, you know, a little while later, it wasn't just all in the Alps. A little while later, I was laying on a blanket in my backyard. This is my backyard. And I had a blanket down in the part that's a little patchy. And that was a good place for shade in the afternoon. And laying there on a blanket in my backyard, listening to some worship music, and, and having the very presence of God meet me in a profound way there. I had another hike that wasn't quite as epic as the Alps, but was just kind of up by Saddleback Mountain down here in our local hills. And it felt to me almost like the cloud of the presence of God that came into the temple came to me in this, in this mountain, in this morning hike. And it felt to me that the presence of God was meeting me in a significant way there. And I, I share these three different places and stories because I want you to understand that God's not in the Alps, right, alone. God's not only in that most beautiful place. God was also in my backyard, and God was also in the hills nearby. God's not here only in a church building or in a temple in Jerusalem. God's presence is everywhere. And I want to kind of start to open us up to an understanding of that today that I think should shift the way we think about prayer a little bit. Uh, I Whenever I'm preparing for a sermon, I'm, I'm constantly like reading broadly and deeply and all sorts of different things that I'm studying. And I can't always cite every commentary or something that I'd use. But I will cite someone today because I'm using um, a significant portion of what they shared a couple weeks ago at a conference that I watched a sermon by Tim Mackey of The Bible Project. We've mentioned The Bible Project a lot. Hopefully you um, use and enjoy The Bible Project um, but he gave a, a sermon on prayer in this way that was so significant that I'm going to be taking us on a, a journey through the scriptures that was similar to the one that he took us on in that message I saw. And I want us to think about how do we answer this question, when and where is God? When and where is God? And so I'll, I'll take us then to another question of, okay, when is paradise? That might seem like a strange question, and I hope that intrigues you. So let's dig into a little bit more of what I could be talking about. Today, I'm going to be taking us through a bunch of different scriptures. I'm not going to have the verses on the screen. I'd love for you to grab a Bible on the back of the seat there in front of you. I'm reading from the NLT. Those are NLTs. Any version is fine, um, but would love for you to follow along. I also put the page numbers on the screen for those Bibles on the back of the seat. If you're newer to flipping around in the Bible, that could be very helpful for you, especially as we take a journey through the scriptures. Luke 23, 42 to 43. When is paradise? This is the story where Jesus is on the cross. This is the crucifixion. And when Jesus is on the cross, there are two other crosses next to him with two criminals. And one of those criminals says to Jesus in verse uh, 42, he said, Jesus Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replied, I assure you, today you will be with me in paradise. Okay? Jesus says this, you will be with me today in paradise. Now, we think of paradise as heaven. And we should. We should think of paradise as heaven. But this Greek word used here, paradise, is this, it's very easily translated because it's paradisos. And we translate it paradise. Now, that word is used as a garden or a park and is the word used in the Greek Old Testament as the Garden of Eden. It's the word used to describe the Garden of Eden. 
Because that should be a thing that would trigger you if you were a reader in the first century, a student of the scriptures in the first century or today. Because when you say, Jesus says, I'll meet you a little while later today in the garden. And you think, whoa, whoa, the garden, the garden, the garden of Eden. And you well, okay, wow, what is that about? What could that mean? The Garden of Eden is all the way back in Genesis 1 and 2 in the beginning. In the very beginning, that's what Genesis even means, is beginning. And so we go all the way back then to find this perfect place of, of being with God and God's presence there. And everything is right before the fall that beautiful Garden of Eden. And so we begin to think then here, all right, so when is paradise? Is it in the past, back in the Garden of Eden? Or is it a little while later today after we're both dead? Right? That seems to be what Jesus says to the other criminal on the cross. So when does all this happen? Well, we need to keep journeying through the scriptures. Is it past? Is it present? Is it future? And so we look to Revelation 21 and 22, the very last two chapters of the entire Bible. And we get back there and we see in 21 and 22, it's talking about this new heaven and new earth that will come after the judgment. At the end of days, you have this new heaven and new earth. And it is like a garden. It is described as a new garden of Eden. But you have this city of, of heavenly Jerusalem descending upon it. And so you have this moment of the garden and a city together, this garden city. And it is a moment of heaven meeting earth and we will spend an eternity in that wonder, this new Garden of Eden. So then you think, when is paradise? Is paradise in the past, in the Garden of Eden? Is it in the future future when we'll be in that new heaven and new earth? Is it a little while later today when we're both dead? We need to keep journeying through the scriptures. 2 Corinthians 12, turn there with me. 2 Corinthians 12, 1 through 4. And we get to the Apostle Paul. This is his writings. Now, Paul, a lot of people love the writings of Paul. A lot of people find Paul kind of like, hey, you got a lot of rules, buddy. You know, you got a lot of stuff to do. You got a lot of to-do lists for me. Kind of dogmatic, kind of intense guy. Uh, a lot of people feel like Paul had good words, but maybe he wasn't the most fun hang because um, he's a pretty intense guy. Now, Paul, though, here, as you might think of him as a man of doctrine and truth and scriptures and all of that, we see an experience Paul has that is radical. 2 Corinthians 12, 1 through 4. He says, This boasting will do no good, but I must go on. I will reluctantly tell about visions and revelations from the Lord. This, this, this passage is probably going to blow your mind if you've not read it. I was caught up to the third heaven 14 years ago. <laughs> What? <laughs> right? Like the third heaven? What is that? It doesn't really talk about that anywhere else in the Bible. Like, what do you mean the third heaven? Okay, so I'm caught up to something of the third heaven. He says, uh, whether I was in my body or out of my body, I don't know. Only God knows. Okay, so something kind of wild's happening. He's not sure if he's in his body or out of his body as he is somehow caught up to this third heaven. And in, in verse 3 he says, yes. Only God knows whether I was in my body or outside my body. But here's something I do know, he says, but I do know that I was caught up to where? Paradise. 
I was caught up to paradise and heard things so astounding that they cannot be expressed in words, things no human is allowed to tell. Whoa. That is a mind-blowing, radical experience of the Spirit of God, of, of experiencing God himself being caught up into some sort of third level of heaven in the body, out of the body. He's not sure what is happening in all of this. But when we get to this question again of when is paradise, which is a weird question I get, when is it? Because it's like, okay, well, is it in the past? Garden of Eden? Is it in the future, future, when the end of days with the new heaven and new earth? Is it a little later today when we're both dead after we die that Jesus seems to say? Or is it something that we can experience now while we're alive? For Paul, it was, it, he says it was 14 years ago, but it was something that he experienced while on this earth of being in paradise, taken up into it. Okay, we're getting into some wild stuff happening here. As I read the Bible, that's all I'm doing, remember. I'm just reading the Bible to you here today as we find all these things. Okay, so when is paradise? Yes. When is paradise? All of the above, okay? That's what we can begin to understand, that paradise is all of the above of when it is. Past, present, future. We'll start to have a greater understanding of what that means as we continue. Let's go to another passage as we want to answer this question. Then where is paradise? When and where is God? Now where is paradise? Let's go to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1. Okay, so it's obviously the last book of the Bible there for you since we already were in it. But we look in Revelation 1. It's the beginning of this whole account this revelation that Jesus gives to John, one of the disciples, who has now been exiled onto an island called Patmos, off the coast of Turkey, between Greece and Turkey. He is on this island, and he meets Jesus. Jesus says to him in verse 8, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord God. I am the one who is who always was, and who is still to come, the Almighty One. That should hopefully take you back to the, so when is God, right? Always was, always is, always will be. He always is. Now, verse 9, John kind of starts describing what's going on here. He says, I, John, am your brother and your partner in suffering, and in God's kingdom, and in the patient endurance to which Jesus calls us. I was exiled to the island of Patmos, for preaching the word of God and for my testimony about Jesus. He says, it was the Lord's day and I was worshiping in the spirit. Okay, so there's this moment of worship that is somehow described a little bit differently as in the spirit worshiping. And then it says, suddenly I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet blast. It said, and it tells him to write down this book, all the stuff you see and all the stuff you'll see with these seven churches and so on. And then verse 12 says, When I turned to see who was speaking to me, I saw seven gold lampstands. Now that should like take you into a vision of the temple, 
menorah, seven-pronged lampstand, right? So that's taking you into a temple or the heavenly temple in some way. And then it says, and standing in the middle of the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man. And now it begins to describe him. The Son of Man is the name of Jesus. He was wearing a long robe with a gold sash across his chest. His head and his hair were like, were white like wool, as white as snow. And his eyes were like flames of fire. His feet were like polished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice thundered like mighty ocean waves. He held seven stars in his right hand and a sharp two-edged sword came from his mouth. And his face was like the sun in all its brilliance. So he's describing Jesus as he sees Jesus. He doesn't see like a little sort of like meek little guy in a robe, right? He sees this powerful being that is brilliant and shining with a face like the sun. The sun's heat and fire is the most intense image that we would have to describe something like that. And that's what he sees. I'd even want you to pause there and think when I pray the prayer of blessing, make his face to shine upon you. It's that, a face shining with the brilliance and the fire of the sun. Look full in his wonderful face. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Maybe be careful, okay, as you do. It's going to be a radical experience. It shouldn't be, you know, it shouldn't be chill. It shouldn't be nothing, okay? This is a big deal. And so that is who he sees. And then he continues to go on and tell things. Verse two, in chapter 2, 7, he even says, To everyone who's victorious, I will give fruit from the tree of life in the paradise of God. All right, so where is paradise, though, is the question that we're thinking of. So is paradise on an island off the coast of Turkey, or is it something else? Is it some sort of heavenly court, some sort of heavenly temple? Where is paradise? Paradise is described with lots of different imagery, like we said, gardens and temples and mountaintops and in the spirit, the heavens. You see, the apostles, the disciples that saw Jesus, that begin to write what they saw, they have a very different way of seeing reality than any of us have or any of us have most likely experienced. Because the reality of what's happening all around us is not able to be described with or, or, or experienced with just our five senses or described with the dimensions within which we live. There is more going on than meets the eye or can be touched by our human hands. That we live in a natural world that is also interwoven with the supernatural world all around us. That we are experiencing a holy God, a supernatural God that also is relating to us in the this natural world. We are spiritual beings. We are so much more than just our physical bodies. We are them and they're wonderful and God has created us with amazing beauty and wonder, but we are so much more than that and relate to a holy and spiritual God. I want to begin to open your minds that God has something so much more for you in prayer than just getting your list out. You're going to meet with that Jesus. Because you see, for these apostles, the understanding of reality was not about a place or a time. It was about a person. The person of Jesus. To meet him, to be with him in all of the truth and reality of who he is. 
both here on earth incarnate as one of us, but also as this, this image that we get of his true nature. Jesus is this eternal now. He always was, always is, always will be, is how he describes himself. He is always there, and we can relate to him in any where and any when. <laughs> I want us to begin to understand that. John was in the spirit, in the spirit on Patmos. He was in paradise, but he was also in Patmos. Okay, I want you to get that, that we can be in the very presence of God in the here and now, that embracing love of God that I have experienced and was outpouring over me in Switzerland is everywhere, it's every when, it's not just there. Let's, let's, let's take our journey through the scriptures a little bit farther even. Okay, so Genesis 28. Genesis 28, let's go all the way back. It's the first book of the Bible. And Genesis 28, you have this story with a guy named Jacob. His grandpa was a guy named Abraham. Abraham is who God said, this is my chosen one. My chosen people will go through Abraham. He had a son named Isaac, and Isaac had a son named Jacob. Jacob's name is eventually changed to Israel, and that's why we have now the people of Israel, um, and they go on from there. Now, Jacob's, uh, like, part of Jacob's story is a little bit rough. This guy isn't always the best, the best friend, the best brother, uh, the best son. Because where we are in the story is he's just conned and deceived and stolen the blessing and birthright that was supposed to be for his brother. And he's stolen it for himself. And now he's on the run away from his brother. And as he's on the run, we get to Genesis 28 verse 10. It says, Meanwhile, Jacob left Beersheba and traveled toward Haran. Okay, so where he is physically in the world is in the south of Israel between two cities, Beersheba and Haran. All right, so south of Israel, down there, kind of deserty, that's where he's at. Verse 11. At sundown, he arrived at a good place to set up camp. He stopped there for the night, and then it says he goes to sleep. And verse 12, as he slept, he dreamed of a stairway that reached from the earth up to heaven. And he saw the angels of God going up and down the stairway. I don't know how many of you just like realized that that's not just like a Led Zeppelin song. Like this is like a real thing that happened. Okay. So if you did, I, I apologize for Robert Plant's deception of you. But here we go. So that is what he sees in this dream. And look at verse 13. It's my favorite part. It says, at the top of the stairway stood the Lord. At the top of the stairway stood the Lord. He sees God himself. Don't you want that? He's with God there in this dream. In this moment that he's with God. And God speaks a blessing over him. This deceiver, this con man, this thief. Maybe you feel like, ah, you know, I'm not really the greatest person myself, honestly. He speaks a blessing and says, I will make your descendants many and pass on my line through you. And we ultimately will see Jesus come through this line as well. That God meets with this man here in this place. At a campsite in the desert in the south of Israel. Where is paradise? Is it in Beersheba and Haran? <laughs> Where is it? 
Let's keep going. <laughs> okay, Ezekiel 8. Ezekiel 8 is another radical story, okay? This is, this is a, like, the Bible is incredible. I hope you're kind of like starting to see. We're going all over the place. We've been in the beginning. We've been in the end. We've been in a couple different places in the middle. Been in the Gospels and the prophets. Ezekiel 8. The people of Israel have been exiled out of their land. They've been, they've been defeated and taken out of Israel, and they're now in Babylon. And they're sitting in Babylon, and Ezekiel is a prophet of God. And it says, On September 17th, during the sixth year of King Jehoiachin's captivity, while the leaders of Judah were in my home, Ezekiel says, the sovereign Lord took hold of me. God took hold of him, it says. He says, I saw a figure that appeared to be a man. From what appeared to be his waist down, he looked like a burning flame. From the waist up, he looked like gleaming amber. Who do you think this could be, my friends? This is Jesus he is meeting in the midst of this whatever is happening in this house in Babylon. And then it says, uh, he reached out what seemed to be a hand. I think that's like a funny line. Okay. He reached out what seemed to be a hand and took me up by the hair. Then the spirit lifted me up into the sky and transported me to Jerusalem in a vision from God. I was taken to the north gate of the inner courtyard of the temple where there's a large idol that has made the Lord very jealous. Suddenly, the glory of the God of Israel was there, just as I had seen it before in the valley. Ezekiel is meeting God himself in this moment, being taken up out of a house, somewhere between a house and the skies, the heavens, and then transported to a vision of the temple. So where is paradise? In Patmos? In Beersheba? In a house in a refugee camp in Babylon? Yes, <laughs> all of the above. Where is paradise? Where is God? And so can you again see how differently the people of the scriptures, the writers of the scriptures, the heroes of the biblical stories, how differently they, they see and talk about time, place, existence, we again are not merely physical beings. We are spiritual beings that relate to a holy God with a very thin line between heaven and earth. There is a thin line between heaven and earth. And where do we learn all this stuff that's kind of, you know, if I just said all this stuff to you, like we were just in a conversation and you didn't have, like I wasn't reading the verses, you'd be like, bro, you are crazy, right? <laughs> and I'm like, it's just a Bible study, okay? We're doing a Bible study. We're walking through the verses. This is what the scriptures say. And we live in a world that has somehow caused us to not believe this stuff. We've built up some sort of walls and defenses and boundaries. As, maybe as little kids, we were probably more open to this. But now we've, we've sort of thought like, no, no, no. This is only a, we only live in a physical, natural world and dimension. And we have a hard time believing that there is more than this. But there is, and I want you to believe it. And so when we take our guard down and begin to pray, but begin to pray without babbling words, 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 on and on and on, like Jesus said, hey, don't just stop doing that all the time, right? Don't just keep talking all the time that we can begin to listen and just be with him. That's the kind of prayer I'm talking about today. 
I want to take you to one more place as we consider this question, where and when is God? When and where is paradise? And that is Luke 9, 29 to 36. This is the last one for this portion. Luke 9, it says, um, it is the story of the transfiguration. Okay, and what that means is you've got Jesus, verse 28, about, it says, uh, about eight days later, Jesus took Peter, John, and James up on a mountain to pray. And as he was praying, check this out. The appearance of his face was transformed. And his clothes became dazzling white. So Jesus, here on this mountain, is transfiguring somehow into what? The image that we see in Revelation 1. The image that we see in Ezekiel 8. Jesus before these three guys is kind of becoming his true self, so to speak, right? And then, um, and then it says, suddenly two men, Moses and Elijah, two guys that have been dead for a long, long time, appeared and began talking with Jesus. They were glorious to see, and they were speaking about his exodus from this world, which was about to be fulfilled in Jerusalem. And then Peter kind of gets confused, and then verse 34, it says, But even as he was saying this, a cloud overshadowed them, and terror gripped them as the cloud covered them, which is what would happen in the, the time of the tabernacle and the temple as the presence of God filled it was with the presence of a cloud over it. Then a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. This is my son, the Messiah. Listen to him. And so God, this voice out of this cloud in this moment where all this is happening, speaks the true identity of who Jesus is. He is the one you've been waiting for. He is the Messiah. He is the Savior. And his face is shining and shining and shimmering like the sun. Make his face to shine upon you. In all these spots where heaven meets earth, they meet a person. It's the person of Jesus that they meet in these moments of this thin line between heaven and earth. And Jesus is everywhere and every when. So when it comes to prayer, it's not a, there's not a place you can go. There's not a moment in your life where Jesus is not present and available to be with you. And so prayer is a way of engaging with him and surrendering your whole person, every aspect of you, natural and supernatural. You surrender all of that to him to be with him and to be shaped by him and by his word. And so prayer is keeping company with God, as we said before. Be still and know that I am God. Prayer is to believe and exist in the world as if all of what I have just said today is true. That you can interact with the God of the, that created the entire universe, the most powerful being of all, the one who is shining and burning like the sun in his glory and strength and power. And he says, I want to be with you. And where did we learn all this? Just a Bible study. Just a simple walk through the scriptures. That's where we find this out. And so now what I want to do is, is uh, have Erin Holm, who was just up here, but she is our a pastor of spiritual formation, just to talk through with you a little bit about, okay, so how do we 
do this kind of prayer? What's, what are some things we can do? And then she'll actually lead you in a practice of it as well. Yeah, awesome. Take it away. Thanks. Yes, so along the lines of um, prayer being keeping company with God, um, we recognize that prayer can look very different, right? There's not one right way to pray necessarily. There's multiple ways to pray. We, we talked about it. It's asking God of things. It's petitionary prayer. There's intercessory prayer, praying on behalf of another. There's listening prayer where we're quiet and we're asking God to speak to us, to hear from him. But this morning, as we're talking about prayer, along the lines of Psalm 46.10, be still and know that I am God, that comes from the Psalms, Psalms 46.10. And the Psalms are a book that teaches how to pray. They are meant to be prayed. They teach us what God can hear, all the laments, all the praises, and everything in between. And what's interesting about Psalm 46.10 is that there's no words involved. But it's still teaching us how we can pray. It's still teaching us how we can keep company with God and be with him. It's teaching us that prayer, in prayer, we can be still with God and we can know that he is God and that he is with us. And so one of the ways that this has um, been come to be known as is contemplative prayer. So contemplative prayer is, uh, this is my bad, oh no. Contemplative prayer is um, simply attending to what the Holy Spirit is already doing in your heart. We believe that the Holy Spirit is always at work in our lives. He's always praying on our behalf, as Romans 8 says. He's praying on your behalf with groanings too deep for words. And so in contemplative prayer, we are simply attending to what he's already doing in us. He's praying for us. He is with us. And so it's being with him. Now, centering prayer can be a little um, intimidating maybe. Maybe even that phrase, you're like, ugh, contemplative prayer? How do I even do it? It, it, it kind of seems super broad and super like undoable even. Like what does it even mean to be contemplative in, in, a, in a Christian sense? And uh, contemplative prayer really is just communion with God. It's being present to a God who's already present with you. It's practicing the presence of God, as Brother Lawrence would say. And it's just opening to him. Colossians 3, uh, 2 says, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. And that's in the most, most simplest form, that is what contemplative prayer is. And so because contemplative prayer, again, could be a little intimidating, especially if you've never practiced it. It's like, what do I do? How does this even work? I want to introduce you to a prayer called Centering Prayer. Now, centering prayer is an expression of contemplative prayer. And it's discerning that God is with you. It's discerning that, God, you are with me. And so for a little imagery for us, if, if uh, contemplation, if contemplative prayer is a gift from God, then centering prayer is a means to opening the gift. It's, uh, it's something that we do. We do centering prayer where contemplative prayer is just the opening, okay? And so keep this idea in your mind of the gift. It might be helpful. Um, it's kind of like also taking a road trip with a friend or a spouse, like someone you've known for a long time, and you're like, you're starting out your road trip, and you're like talking. Maybe you're catching up for the first hour or two. But then, you know, as time goes on, you kind of stop talking to each other. 
There's no need to talk, no need to listen necessarily, but you're still existing with that person and you're still being present to them in a sense. It's this idea that we are present again to God who is already present with us. And I wonder how many times, I mean for me too, I, I, how many times I go to prayer and I'm not even acknowledging that God's present to me. I'm just telling him things or asking him things or I'm talking at him. This is a different invitation to slow down, to be still, to know that he is God. And so centering prayer is a releasing in a sense. It's, God, you're already here, and I don't need you to come how I want you to come. A lot of times in prayer, it's easy for me to want God on my own terms. I ask you this, so tell me in return what I want to hear. It's God, show up in this way, this profound way. And sometimes he does. But in centering prayer, we are practicing this slowing down and recognizing that maybe we don't need to have God on our own terms. We aren't expecting him to show up just as we want him to show up. And it's so simple. The practice of centering prayer is so simple, but it's also really hard. And it's really hard, and I was kind of praying through this this past week. I'm like, why is it so hard for me? The number one thing that came to my mind is that I'm very impatient in prayer. I want to kind of go to prayer and be with the Lord and kind of tell him what's on my heart, which, again, is not bad. He, he can handle that. But I think the thing is, is that we're missing out on a lot if we're just going to God and just saying and babbling off our list. And so in centering prayer, it slows us down, and my impatience gets in the way because literally I practice centering prayer sometimes, and I'm like two minutes in wanting to like grab my phone because I'm so impatient. I want God to show up right then in that one moment. I want him to, I want to experience him in a very profound way, right? Or I'm just ready to go to my next thing for the day. I'm ready to like start getting ready for work or, you know, eating breakfast or whatever. I'm ready to go to the next thing. I'm just so impatient. And I wonder if you're similar. I wonder if a struggle when it comes to these types of prayers, impatience. And that's okay. That's something you can work out with the Lord. And so again, my experience of centering prayer has been a few different things. It's been one where I've practiced it and the Lord has shown me something in my heart that maybe he says he wants to retrain he wants to transform in me. Maybe it's a sin or a vice or an unhealthy habit. Other times it's been really sweet. And I just feel like the Lord is there hugging me. And I feel his witness in those moments. And then there's other times where absolutely nothing happens at all. And I'm like, is this worth it? And I say again, even every time nothing at all happens, it's worth it. Because I believe that it's changing my life. I believe that it is formative and it's an important part of my prayer life and journey with Jesus. And so there's a few easy steps to what centering prayer actually looks like. And the first step is this. You choose a word that is important or sacred to you. And so it's not just any word like fruit loop or I don't know, Fruit Loop, it's kind of random. Um, Fruit Loop or, you know, your spouse's name or your dog's name or, you know, your favorite sports team. It's a sacred or important word. And if you're like, well, what word do I choose? I encourage you to think, when you think of God, what word comes to mind? How do you tend to meet God? Do you say, Lord? You say, Jesus? Father? Or another word that has to do with God's character, mercy? Love. Or there's a short phrase for centering prayer that's also helpful to use. It's let go. 
let go. So you choose an important or sacred word that is there to recenter you. It's a word that acts as a symbol for you to come back to him. And the word literally means, God, I come back to you. I come back to you. And so the way you do centering prayer is you sit in a comfortable position so you're not distracted by that. And you introduce your time by saying the word. And you're open to him and you're present to him. You're being thoughtful of him. If you're someone who gets distracted by looking around, it might be helpful to close your eyes. If you're someone who likes to keep your eyes open, maybe stare at something, that's helpful too. And the thing with centering prayer is that thoughts that come to your mind are inevitable. It's going to happen. There's going to be, quote, unquote, distractions, right? Your mind is going to wander. That's inevitable in centering prayer. But the task in centering prayer is that when your mind wanders, when you begin kind of thinking about other things, you come back to that word, Father. And it's a recentering, bringing you back to your putting your attention on him. So in a short sense, centering prayer is just being present to God, being mindful of him, setting your mind on things above. God, you're with me. My mind wanders to my to-do list today, to my kids, to everything I have to do in the future. It's Father. It's whatever your word is. It's re-centering. It's very simple. And uh, I was thinking, you know, concerning prayer, when I first started doing this about two years ago, my mind would wander consistently. And I was thinking, well, man, my mind just wandered 200 times in five minutes. <laughs> But then that was 200 times I got to return and put my attention back on the Lord. And that's fun too. That's an opportunity to be attentive to him and what he is doing in your heart and your soul. And it's up to him what he brings in that time. It might be nothing. It might be something. But I believe it is formative to your spirit and your soul. And you becoming more like Christ and just your relationship with him in general and experiencing his love. And so after that, you, you could choose the amount of time you could do it. You could do it for 10 minutes, 5 minutes, 20 minutes. I wouldn't start at half an hour, but you could try. I would start at 5, 3. And we're going to do that here in just a moment. And it's also helpful to end with something concrete. And so today we're going to end with the Lord's Prayer. And so what we're going to do is I'm going to give you 5 minutes, and we're going to practice centering in prayer. So even right now, begin thinking, what is that word? What is that sacred word that could recenter me and bring my attention back to the Lord? And at the end, the fourth minute, the Lord's Prayer is going to come up on the screen. And I can encourage you to think about your current life situations, your current life circumstances, and allow the Lord's Prayer to condition those requests. So practice centering prayer. In the fourth minute, the Lord's Prayer will come up, and the band is going to lead us in a few more songs. So take your time now. <laughs> 